Father, as we hear soon about the amazing gift you gave us of your son Jesus, we want to say thank you. Thank you for your son and his death on that cross. Thank you for sending your spirit who brings us comfort. And thank you for your word, which encourages us, teaches us, and spurs us on to love and serve you more. Settle our minds and our hearts to receive all that you have to give us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The first reading is from Matthew 27 and is verse 45 to 50. The death of Jesus. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma saktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. The second reading is from Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, So I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest... And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. 
Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, um, there are notes that you can follow if that's helpful to you. Not everybody finds that helpful, but it's there for those of us who need them and would like them. And there's also some resources at the end which you might find helpful, um, particularly if you want to follow through on this topic uh, today throughout the rest of the week. I meant to say two things myth-busting about what Engage Work Faith was. It's not city only. Um, we're on about work, not the city necessarily, and we want to help people in the workplace. The other thing is we're regional. So we've actually started groups uh, in regional South Australia for the first time in the last 12 months, and we're very, very keen to work with anyone who's in the workplace. So to help me this morning, so I know where to pitch, um, hands up if you run your own business down here. Okay. Hands up if you're retired down here. All right. Hands up if you work for an employer. Okay, that's so helpful for me, so that I don't pigeonhole who you are. All right. Well, why do we need to think about uh, rest? <clears throat> it's one of the greatest themes in the Bible. It starts in Genesis, and it closes in the book of Revelation, and it's all about one of the biggest themes is about God securing rest for those who turn to him. Second reason why we need to look at this. We're living in a hurry sickness world. As technology gives us greater capacity and we can do more and more and more, Christians just imbibe this into their lives without necessarily filtering it. I've been part of a series of workshops with some Christian uh, leaders around Adelaide this year trying to improve our prayer lives uh, with a presenter, Dr Peter Adam, who after 40 years of looking after ministers and um, helping them, has made this uncomfortable observation of the modern church where he says we may love God deeply but we just don't know how to sit with God anymore. The Old Testament teaches us to delight in the Sabbath. It's designed, it was designed to remind God's people that they were no longer slaves from, um, in Egypt and that they were free now. They didn't have to go back to that world of enslavement, which we saw so clearly if we had have dragged half those things across the stage. Um, by the time you get to the New Testament, though, the Pharisees have just really distorted this, and what was a sign of rescue for God's people has become a rod for their own backs. As parents, if you're a parent here, one of the greatest legacies that you could leave to your children about the faith is learning how to rest in God. Um, I ride my bike to the city each day. Um, that's not my bike, but anyway, <laughs> a couple of times a week, I take a detour and go through the West, um, the West Terrace Cemetery. And the first thing I notice when I go through the cemetery is the hush that comes over the peak hour. Um, I, I ride past the graves of people whom, um, from the brief glance that I can see of the headstones, reminds me of the vast humanity that is buried there. Some people have worked hard throughout their lives. Some people have had their dreams cut short. Some have loved 
passionately and been loved passionately back. Others have barely tolerated their fellow human beings. Some have been worrying about stuff. Others expected life to to deliver more. But what they all have in common is that the dust of their collective lives have settled in that West Terrace cemetery. And a phrase that's carved out in the stone of many of those um, headstones is this. It's It's a hope. Rest in peace, it says. And it's a sobering five-minute detour that I actually do um, because I know one day I have to join them. The topic of rest, we could have a whole series on this, but we don't have time for it. But what I'm going to do this morning is I I want you to strain your eyes forward and look at the future of where rest heads. How can we secure rest and how can we finally rest in peace? And to do that, we're going to have a quick look at how Jesus secured rest for us. Then we're going to look at how being a Christian is really a type of resting in the way that we go about following him. And then we're going to look at what threatens rest, the great warnings not to neglect rest, and then the irony of struggling to rest until we get to paradise. So, rest assured, if you're following your outline, a cursory glance of the Gospels will show you that Jesus juggled work and rest. You get into the boat with him in Matthew 4. He's in the bottom of the boat. He needs a rest to sleep while the storm's happening. He teaches on rest. Um, he says, as we learned today, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you not more work but rest. And then he proclaims himself as the Lord of rest in Matthew 12. And that claim, that's the tipping point for the Pharisees. That's what gets them going and plotting his death. If you really want to understand the sort of rest that God holds out to us, Well, it culminates in what eventually happens at the cross. How does dying on a cross make Jesus the Lord of rest? Well, if you read the accounts, and we heard one of them this morning of the crucifixion, what you find there is Jesus writhing and calling out with a loud voice. There's no peaceful slipping away moment that's going on here in a hospital ward. He is restless. Now, why is he restless at this point? And I'm thankful to the late Tim Keller for this insight. He takes you back to Isaiah 57, verse 20, and you'll see it on the PowerPoint there. And this is what it says. The wicked are like a tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace for the wicked. The wicked are restless. So what do you see at the cross? You see Jesus taking up all the wickedness, all the sin, all the restlessness of humanity. And in his writhing, he experiences infinite restlessness, infinite sinfulness, cosmic restlessness. Why? Because he wants to secure rest for us. He goes through utter turmoil and then says in his final breath, it's over, it's done, it's finished. 
No more wrestling. Now, here's a curious way to describe yourself as a Christian next time to the people around you. You could say to them, well, I'm a person who rests. I rest on, not on my works and what I'm doing, but on the great, utterly perfect and finished work of Jesus. God accepts me, not because of what I've chalked up over the years, but because of what Jesus did. Christians are rest assured. Rest is something that's secured outside of ourselves. That's our marker. So in contrast, the wider culture, the wider culture struggles to understand rest. Uh, one of the great dangers of technology, more recently because of COVID, people are easily working from home now, and that's created this strange confection where work and rest have been sort of pressed together. We never quite leave work when we're at home. Work is this fine powder that's been ground down and sprinkled through the dust of everything we do, and there is no boundaries. There's no definitive break, unless you really push hard. So we need to have a recalibrated mindset if we're Christians. Christians can be thermostats. You know what a thermostat does? A thermostat actually sets the temperature on the issue of rest in this case. Not thermometers that just reflect the wider culture around us of restlessness, where our medal of honour is longer days and more hours, busier work days and overpacked diaries. So Alex Pang, in his book titled Why You Get More Done When You Rest, he brings the research in and says, you get far better results from people who have rested. Pragmatically, deliberate rest will give you sharper ideas. It'll give you greater reflection, more creativity, better health and well-being. Without rest, there's no chance for you to think about where you're ultimately going and who you want to be. So, I know this principle when I go to the gym. So if I go to the gym, I normally combine three exercises and I go through them and then I repeat them and I do that three times. If I don't measure the rest at the end of the first three, the exercise gives less and less back. It becomes increasingly ineffective if I don't have that rest after the first three and the second three and the third three. You know this principle in life. If you grow veggies and you have raised veggie beds, if you leave one fallow for one season, it'll give back to you in a way that it can never do if you just try and pump it and pump it and pump it year and season after season. You know the difference between roasting a meat and leaving it on a bench for a little while before you serve it and allowing it to rest. We know this in the world, but at the same time, we think we can live without night and day and the seasons and the rhythm of the week and the whole thing becomes a constant twilight for us. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Crazy Busy, points out that we get two and a half hours less sleep on average per night than our counterparts in 1923. We've shaved it down that much. Theologian Don Carson lists sleep deprivation as one of the six possible causes of doubting in God. 
So sometimes the godliest thing you might be able to say to another Christian is go and get a good night's sleep. Listen to the caution of Psalm 127, verse 2. In vain you rise up early. In vain you go to bed late. Toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. When you go to sleep, in effect, you down tools, you say, I'm not God. I'm going to leave it to the one who is. Now, more than just struggling, the world is trying to erode any impact that Jesus had through his death on the cross and the rest that he secured. And so in the book of Hebrews and the New Testament, the Christian life gets depicted for us as this sort of long journey with a goal at the end of reaching a rest, having a rest. If you look up Hebrews 4, 1 to 11 on your phone, or if you've got a Bible there, you want to follow along with me, we're just going to have a quick look at this and see the parallels. Because the Old Testament people of God, they were rescued from slavery, they were led out of Egypt, they were taken to a place of rest. It was a dangerous journey along the way. They had to go through a wilderness. The people wavered in their trust that God was going to actually give them a rest and a home in the end. And that prolonged their unhappy journey um, resulting in a whole generation dying in the wilderness. Now, what's the point of the story to the people who got this, the Hebrews, so to speak, thousands of years later? Well, they were in a wave of hostility, where Christianity was a new fandangled religion, and uh, the pressure, the blowtorch was being applied to them, and they thought, look, we'll just slip back under the cover of Judaism for a while, because, you know, people know what that is, but they have no idea what Christianity is. And that will help us. But the person who wrote this letter knows that that would be a complete denial of everything Jesus had won for them. And so he, he brings this example to them from the Old Testament and warns them that they can't stop resting on the finished work of Christ. They, they, they need to, if they go back and rely on their own efforts and achievements, that would be a pastoral nightmare for them. So Hebrews 4 unpacks three key truths about rest that take you well beyond the Israelites going through the wilderness in the Old Testament. And they are these points. Firstly, God's rest existed before a promised land came on the scene. If you have a look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter um, 4. Secondly, God's rest remains after they get into the promised land. In other words, it's still a thing in verse 6 that God is holding out. And then finally, in verses 9 to 11, that rest is open to us today. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God to enter. <clears throat> so Hebrews is equating ultimate rest with entering God's kingdom in the future. Otherwise, if they'd already got it, when Joshua had taken them into the promised land, then there'd be no need to say this now in the book of Hebrews. The rest of completion that God proclaims at creation is what he is holding out for people still to enter into. We experience it in part now. We have the Holy Spirit as a bit of a deposit taking up residence in our lives, but we don't have the full extent of that rest yet. That experience of partially holding something for the future is something that rings true in our lives, isn't it? You think about um, 
How often the thought of a holiday, a long holiday, will keep you pinned in the stress of the moment? Or think about how knowing the weekend is coming take, can take you through a hellish week. Or even for those poor people in Ukraine, the hope of a ceasefire can help them to live through a raging war. You know, it's delayed gratification, if you like. And it's what Hebrews is impressing on the people who read it. The pursuit of eternal rest is costly. It's a pilgrimage, it's a journey where the disciple at the end of their days ceases from their labour, just like God did from his in Genesis. Now, Andrew DeBanco, in his book, The American Dream, he has this very, very disturbing quote, but it's worth looking at. He says, hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to fidgeting while we wait for death. All our getting and spending amounts to fidgeting while we wait for death. There's absolutely no question in the Bible that rest is coming. So you need to hold on to that hope. Otherwise, you're just fidgeting in this world. How does that compare that picture of rest that God holds out for us with your current picture of rest? Now, maybe for you, it's a deep soaking bath for your tired muscles or a deserted beach fringed with shady palms, or maybe curling up beside a crackling fire with a good book, which you may have been able to do last week with the way the weather was. But whatever it is, Unconsciously, when we do that activity, we equate it with heaven when we say, oh, this is heaven. This is heaven. If, if you came down to Victor Harbour to retire and rest, I have to break it to you, it can't deliver the sort of sustained rest that your soul yearns for. The sort of thing that Tim Keller describes as the deep inner machinery wired in our DNA constantly murmuring for eternity. God's picture of rest eclipses what we often settle for and then we realise falls far short of our expectations. C.S. Lewis captures it like this. He says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. Hebrews pictures rest as costly. Becoming more like Jesus is not just about, you know, getting converted and then flopping over the line one day and collapsing. The word strive here is the idea of an athlete that just with that intense concentration necessary to reach a goal, just, just thinking about this and focusing on it, which begs the question, when have you done that in your life over things? Well, sometimes we've done it over, you know, got to get the house finished or that person, I'm chasing them, I want that romance. Or I'm going to have these things, this is my bucket list of things. Or 
by hook or crook, I'm going to get a family out of this. Landing that job that will change everything. I mean, we strive. We know how to strive. But it's often for an inferior offering. And that is exhausting. The desire to squeeze more in all the time. How do you know if you're driven? How do you know if your drivenness actually is flawed? Well, you could ask a few diagnostic questions. Do people come up to you and say, they preface their request by saying, look, I didn't want to trouble you because I know how busy you are. That's not a compliment. Do family and friends complain that they don't get enough of you? If you've got young children or if you've got grandchildren, do you have time to pray for them? Do you have time to even pray for yourself? Do you stop and eat together with other people at least once a day? Life teaches us the dangers of neglecting rest. I mean, you you end up with shallow relationships, health risks, addictions. Hebrews just simply, simply takes the negative results of human beings failing to take proper physical rest and applies it brilliantly to the spiritual dimension and warns us not to miss out on appropriating God's ultimate answer to human restlessness. Verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. The Christian life, it's a day by day, it's an hour by hour proposition Trusting, resting on the promises of God until he takes you home. You've got to have that vision in your head. You can't let other things airbrush that out. It's choosing ultimate rest over a life of restlessness. So how can you secure that sort of rest? Keep working it out with other Christians. I mean, keep talking about this. Brainstorm. How are you resting? How are we putting work in its place? How are we dealing with the distractions that take our eyes off the future? How do we keep ourselves from being overwhelmed by what we're doing? Start trying to practice real rest now. It's not enough for you to work like a demon and then go and take time off (laughs) like that. It means fewer goals. It means not trying to do everything. Maybe saying no to some things because you sense that if you say another yes, it's going to take your eyes off Jesus ultimately. One person tells me that they can say no sometimes to Christian ministry stuff because in their head when they say no, they remind themselves of what they've already said yes to and put priority on. Thirdly, make yourself accountable in a busy patch of life. We all have them. You know, you you might have to finish off a house or you might have to start a business or you might be in a new role or you've got a big project to do and and it's going to require overwork for a period of time. I don't know, six months or 24 months or whatever it is, but make yourself accountable to other people who love you and who are honest with you and say to them, if I'm still doing this, after the time's over, I don't want to make this pace normative in my life. Bring me to account on it. 
Remind me of what I said. Finally, build unstructured time into your life that's unplanned, undiarised, just time where your body, your soul and your mind have a chance to free will and things can bubble to the top that otherwise you may never be aware of. So several years ago, I preached at a service at Trinity City where the governor of South Australia was a guest. And that weekend, she'd been touring the Air Peninsula where there'd been horrific fires and loss of life, if you remember that. While I was preaching, I saw her in the front row starting to sob. And afterwards, in an awkward sort of way, I went up and I said, look, what was it in the sermon that triggered that? And she said, nothing. Nothing. It's just the first time in a really, really busy week, I've had a chance to sit, and it's sort of all caught up with me. There's an unhelpful drivenness in human beings, and I think it's there because we're trying to validate the space that we occupy in this universe. You know, we're sort of saying, here's my justification for being here. It's a wearing task. You never know whether you've done enough. And you keep proving yourself to yourself and to those you love and to even your enemies. Surely there's a better way that doesn't enslave us all over again. Am I truly resting in what Jesus work so hard to secure for me. We all know the story of the man who built his barns because he got a big crop. You know, that fantastic work ethic, but what does Jesus say of him? He's a fool at the end of the day because his striving needed to be focused on the right things. Entering rest that Jesus secures for us at the cross, to appropriate that, it requires persistence and focus and a not slipping back into a flawed and inferior offering. As Christians, we need to be advocating rest. You know, in a place like Victor Harbour, as Christians, this is your topic. This is what you need to re-clarify to people. It's our point of difference why we're resting. It's an outworking of how God liberates us and rescues us. Um, Earlier this year, I helped out a mate who was moving uh, into his holiday house down here, his family, home so he needed some help with some stuff so I came down as a thank you the next morning after we did all the moving he said I'm going to take you out fishing because you've never been fishing um, uh, you don't know about it and it's what I do I, I love fishing so he took me to Petrel Cove just down here to fish on a beautiful March morning it was a picture perfect day the sun was rising over the water it had just enough warmth in it that we could sort of wade in and not, you know, sort of be sitting there going, you know, at first thing at six o'clock in the morning. And uh, we were there waist deep in water, learning to cast a rod. I was anyway. And the fish were biting 
And we just kept loading that bait on and casting out and bringing them in. The, they were yellow mullet. And they were, I could see them out. Every time the swell came up, you could see just this massive school of fish just glinting and swimming in the sunlight. It was an amazing moment. And I remember, thank, even though the person I was with wasn't a Christian, I remember thanking God aloud, unconsciously, for his amazing creation, for providing like this, um, with this fresh fish for breakfast, and I just drinking in this magical moment. That, And I remember thinking about it for weeks and weeks and weeks afterwards. I think if I had to describe to you what heaven would be like, partially for me, it's something like that day and place. It's the closest thing. And, you know, and to think when it was dark and we headed off and we were getting all the stuff together, inside I was whinging, why do we have to do this? <laughs> Maybe you need to take a walk. You know, this week. And rediscover your rest. The closing pages of the Bible say, Blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they shall rest from their labours. Now, that tension that we have now between work and rest, it's going to get resolved. And we will kick back one day and we'll reflect on what's been done for us and we'll join the chorus at recreation with God and we'll say, this is good. This is really good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll help us to be people who are characterised by rest and defined by rest which the world is searching for. Amen.